Good evening, everyone. Good evening. So um, let's begin our evening just taking a few minutes to uh, settle into being in this space again together and um, <coughs> to settle into your, um, your own posture and your own space as well. inviting your attention to come to some area within the body that feels uh, accessible as sensation. Maybe the rhythm of the breath, maybe the pressure of sitting on your seat, maybe the feelings in your hands, on your lap, on your knees, or feet on the ground, if you're in a chair. As we do that, we can just be very receptive, receiving what's experienced. The sound is feeling, a sensation, both within our own field of experience and then in a wider field of the group and then beyond into the context we're in. Allowing the mind to to settle from busyness of getting somewhere or the tendency to go back into what's gone. Not completely gone because it resonates now, but uh, not having to be pulled into dwelling, particularly on themes that generate a sense of stress or unhappiness or complexity, confusion, just to simplify the quality of attention and presence. To exactly more what's here now. And uh, allowing the, the lens through which we see and hear and perceive, which often gets filtered through our particular view or agenda or take on things. The way that we place ourselves and each other through the lenses that we carry, which uh, can have value, but allowing our lenses to just be put to one side. So there's something very simple about arriving just here and now as a breathing being sitting in this group, in this space. The roles that we hold, the sense of whether we are a good Dharma practitioner, an experienced one or new or not, or don't know what, what we're doing, feeling a bit lost or feeling on top of things, all of those colorings that shape the sense of self. 
subtly and not so subtly. Just allowing some of that to be put to one side. Simplicity of beginning again, here and now, fresh, open, present, to what is, what is felt, what is here now.
Um, so I'm, I'm very honored to be able to be here with you today and to, uh, to uh, reflect on the Dharma together. Um, <clears throat> and um, I thank you for the invitation um, and the possibility to, to be in your presence and to uh, also have the opportunity as the week goes on to, to learn from you and to hear um, your reflections and the unfolding of your journeys as well. Um, <clears throat> I'm particularly happy to uh, come into this DPP, which is a focus on the Dharma in, a, in perhaps in a slightly more classical way of looking at the suttas and the frames of the teaching. And um, really in that process, I think it's perhaps a very important question is to ask ourselves uh, almost not exactly continually, but to reflect from time to time, um, why are we doing this? Why, why are we actually doing this practice? Why are we doing these retreats? Why are we doing this study? Um, what is this about really? And there's a guideline around that, which was given by the Buddha in the Heartwood Sutta, where he talks about not really just settling for the outer leaves and branches and bark of the tree, but to going right to the heartwood. And the analogy that he gave is that you know, people sometimes go into this practice for various outcomes, but they're really settling for the external fruits for example, in the sutra it says not to just practice for the benefit of gain or honor or for offerings and fame or even for the cultivation of sila or virtue um, or even for the accomplishment of samadhi or, or concentration or single-mindedness, not even for the realization of knowledge and vision through the insight and wisdom. These are all very worthy outcomes and uh, openings and developments that happen on the path. But what is this heartwood? And the way that that is expressed is that the realization and the understanding and the total uh, recognition of the unshakable freedom of the heart. This is the fruit of the practice that we're here really to free ourselves, uh, freedom. Uh, freedom internally and as much as we can, freedom externally. <laughs> as we are looking, as we go in later into the retreat and look into uh, more of the systems that we're living within and the different lack of freedom and how we can actually apply as we come to more clarity and understanding ourselves, how we can reflect from that place into the into the world around us and where and how we can offer from in response to what is not free and suffering. So this, this possibility is a real possibility. This teaching wasn't given um, just for very special people that had great academic acumen or were somehow Olympic meditators or were in some ivory tower that was unreachable by everyone else. This teaching was given to to everyone. Um, 
And, you know, surprisingly, sometimes um, beings would understand the teaching more quickly that that we would perhaps think they wouldn't really have that uh, possibility uh, to do so than some of the most seasoned disciples of the Buddha. There's a story of uh, Super Buddha the leper, which is, I I quite like the story because it really... um, is an example of of how the teaching can it's not really dependent always on how much you've done and who you are and where you've come from in terms of really this realization and the recognition and the opening and the taste into what the where the dharma how the dharma can deliver this moment of uh, freedom and insight freeing consciousness from the 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 um, limitations that we are usually. Uh, labor under. So the Buddha was, had a great assembly draw of his disciples, draw, drew close to him, and they were all sitting there waiting for the teaching. And then this guy, Super Buddha, is called in the suttas, who's uh, a leper, he's an outcast, he's not you know, someone that people would like to draw near to. Um, people are trying to shoo him away. And he, actually, he himself talks about how he saw that there was some food on offer. So he wasn't really coming for the Dharma. He just sort of thought it was a free meal. And so he's hanging around and looking for a bit of you know, free food. And the Buddha sort of scans the assembly, as is often said in the suttas. He scans the assembly to see whose mind is ripe for this particular teaching. And he realized it's actually this guy who's on the edge of the whole assembly. And and so he starts to do the graduated teaching, teaching for um, the development of faith, for the renunciation um, of, the, of the hindrances and, f- and what obstructs for the um, upliftment um, of the cultivation of positive attributes, bringing about heavenly results. So he does a sort of step-by-step teaching until he comes to his pièce de résistance, which is this uh, teaching of the um, four truths. Um, so he lays the groundwork, so the mind, when he recognizes the mind is malleable, open, receptive, then he delivers his teaching on the four truths. And through hearing this, uh, Super Buddha the leper is liberated and, and, and realizes uh, freedom. So it's it's just that um, recognition that it's you know that that at any moment there can be the ripening and the receptivity in the mind of any anyone at any particular stage of their life in any situation to recognize that that freedom is always here and now it's always present the mind's already free the heart's already free but we, we don't recognize it as such. And so we undertake this enormous journey, and, and in, in, in many ways it is a, a very profound journey to uh, liberate ourselves from that which is holding us back, that which oppresses us, that which hinders us, that which obstructs, that which is suffering. And to enter into that, there is this idea of, of a path, that there's a path to be developed, which we've all heard about and that we're all cultivating and that we're all contemplating here through this training. Um, and there's a particular line that I like very much um, in the Sutta, and it's a, tr- a teaching on the um, factors of enlightenment where it says in the Pali, Maga Hattakilesawa, 
is about the, the, the path, activity, maga, path, hatha, kilesa. Hatha means to break up, kilesa, that which obstructs, which means that the actual path activity in and of itself breaks up, has the power to begin to break up that which obstructs, that which keeps us unfree. And, and why I particularly like this line, and I often refer to it as we begin a retreat, when we teach a retreat or even a, a period of practice, is because so often we come from the sense of the me, the self, I'm doing this, I have to do this big journey, I have to be the one liberating, I've got to somehow figure out this enlightenment thing. And it becomes this sort of almighty task almost, this quite heavy burden. It can do. It did for me when I first started to practice. When I was a young nun, I, I, I really, uh, really didn't have much s- subtlety of understanding of the Dharma. So it was very much about me having to do this big thing. And I, re- I remember one day it just became so overwhelming that I, I just felt completely uh, oppressed by the, the actual, not my own hindrances, but I oppressed by the idea of enlightenment. <laughs> it just became this very, very heavy thing. Um, and I remember we used to walk from, this was when I was training in the UK, and we had a small cottage that the nuns lived in, and we would walk up to the main house for the, uh, for the pujas and so on. And it was down a very small country lane. It took about 10, 15 minutes to do this walk. And we'd walk it in all, at all hours of the morning, night, day, because our meditations would start, our pujas would start at 4 a.m. And then once a week, we would sit through the night. So often we'd be walking up and down this lane through through all sorts of weathers and, and um, phases of the, of the day and night. And one one day I was walking down the lane and just feeling this sense of burden and I just sort of veered off the lane and went into a field and lay down and said, I, I can't do it anymore. I'm just gonna lay here and die. I can't I can't not do the path. Um and I can't do it. It's just too too big a too big a, a difficult undertaking. So I'm just gonna lay here in this collapsed state. That was my feeling. And after a while, of course, you know, you have to go and have a pee and you've got to go and eat something. And, you know, so I, I was the melodramatic sort of like left and I thought, like, okay, just carry on. But it was a very important moment because, <laughs> because, I, because, it was, because the insight did arise that, that I was coming from the wrong place. You know, I was coming from this feeling of me having to do this big thing. And uh, then really contemplating this teaching as what, what we actually have to do is not very big because we can only do whatever it is that we're going to do in this moment, in each moment. So the path then becomes our our ability to apply the path activity in each moment. And then the second line, patu upati dhammatang, which means that the fruit of that path path activity, patu upati, upati means to arise. The fruit arises dhammatang, which means according to the dharma according to its own lawfulness. So we don't even have to worry about the fruition of our practice and the path. Um, that will come in, of its own accord, and mysteriously so. It's not something we can actually do from our, our agenda of the sense of self, um, having an idea of where this is all going. But what we can do is just apply 
and quicken the fruit through the application and the honing of these qualities of the path. So when we come to the contemplation of the barami or the baramitas, um, these spiritual perfections that help enable us to cross over the sea of suffering um, and to to ripen into uh, recognizing um, innate freedom, then really we really they're really uh, talking about these are these are positive powerful qualities that are innate for us and that we can develop that are aspects of the path activity so we start to recognize them and recognize them as we're actually applying them and practicing them and as they're actually even spontaneously arising from within ourselves from within the mind itself from the awakened mind which is always inherent so it comes under the, you know, in the in the um, cultivation of the f- of the right effort of the eightfold path under the right efforts of the um, development and the maintenance of the wholesome and the avoiding and the overcoming of the unwholesome. So we see it also as one of the as uh, particularly the two I'm going to talk about today tonight, the two parameters of. Um, renunciation and dana. Um, see dana arising in the, one of the aspects of what's called the five classical um, relative right views, understandings. Uh, the second one being the um, benefits, the power, the punya, the blessing energy that comes from the practice of dana. It becomes a very tangible reality as we practice that in our lives. Um, so you find these, these, um, these parameters all fit within these, this hologram of all these structures of the teaching and, and within itself is a very complete teaching. Um, and it very much applies, as uh, Sally was saying, as we've been talking about and as you know, into the field of our everyday um, life. You know, this is the field that we to cultivate the barami, also cultivate them in our meditative, more formal meditative practice, but also in the actual activation of them. They, they can be applied moment by moment in all that unfolds within the field, the relational field that we move within. So I just wanted to... Um, begin a little bit with um, some of the traditional way of uh, drawing again from the monastic frame of looking at these, these, this particular nexus, these first three parameters, dana, sila, nekama, um, dana, generosity, sila, ethics, virtue, precept, training, which I'm not going to go into tonight because that's going to be addressed later in the week. And then the third one, nikkama, renunciation, restraint, relinquishment, not restraint, so relinquishment, renunciation. These three are often, um, they're they're the the foundational um, first paramis, and they're often very much moving together. um, And they're reflected on as as the foundational practices of the actual practical living of um, monastic life. The whole of the lifestyle is dependent on dana um, and has been for thousands of years. 
that the the transmission of the Dharma through primarily through monastic monastic um, practice, also obviously lay practitioners, but the 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 heart of the preservation of the Dharma has primarily been held within the monastic tradition. It's all been carried by this great stream of offering and dana, uh, and also nikama, renunciation, which is obviously inferred in monastic life. Um, and in that training, that's a contemplation that goes on, particularly say in a Theravada school, and I haven't had a lot of experience in in some of the other schools, but basically through all the schools, um, I'm sure I had have had more experience in the Chinese Mahayana, but in the Theravada, and particularly in the uh, Thai forest school that I trained in, every day there's the reflection um, on the four requisites that we that we live by, um, and these are the the requisites of alms, food, the requisites of um, robes, the requisites of lodging, and the requisites of medicine. These are considered the four basic things you need for physical survival. And so the contemplation is to be um, to be content with what alms food is offered, not to have to seek the best food, not to have to seek the most delicious. Um, if you go on arms round and someone offers you just some sticky rice and a banana one day, that's great. And if you get invited to a palace the next day and you're invited a beautiful meal, that's fine too. But to learn to have more equanimity. Um, the same with uh, lodgings and spaces that you might live in to train the mind that this is the dwelling for the night. So sometimes maybe a beautiful dwelling, sometimes a shack. The same with uh, the, with the robes, um, not to have to seek the best um, clothes, the most beautiful, but to to take the, f- the 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 material that no one was wanted. So what was often left in the charnel grounds to make up a, a, a rag robe. And no one sort of looks at your robes with great lust and says, "I really want that piece of clothing." Or medicine, um, the medicine that. Uh, the very, very basic medicines that as allowances and also, um, uh, just to say it because it's there in the suttas, that the, the use of fermented urine, which actually any old farmer will tell you about, um, as an antiseptic, um, which was used if there's nothing else around, nothing else going. So this is just a very sort of basic standard and it's not to say, you know, the difficulty about... Um, so I like to look at the, through the lens of the tradition because we can look at this through the, uh, an other lens, psychological development of the self. We can look through systems, oppressive systems, and how that might land and how we might hear um, these frames. And uh, you know, I probably won't have time to go into that right now tonight, but later I certainly want to because each of those lenses are very important. But just to hear some of the basic training of how renunciation is held as a, as a daily reflection or to reflect um, in the five subjects of frequent re- recollection, reflect daily, I am the nature to age, I am the nature to sicken, I am the nature to die, um, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing will become otherwise, will become separated from me. 
I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma. So these kinds of reflections are done daily to attune the mind, in a, obviously in a particular way, rather than what do I need, what shall I go out and get, what aren't I, what haven't I um, accomplished yet. It has this whole feeling about what do I need to let go of, what do I need to relinquish, and can I live from that place. Um, and even taking on extra trainings, like Sally mentioned, the eight precepts, the last three are over and above the five precepts, the three renunciant trainings, to not eat afternoon solid foods, um, to not seek out adornments and entertainments, and the curious one of not sleeping on high and luxurious beds, <laughs> which we certainly have in our new teacher accommodation, which I've quite been quite enjoying this afternoon. But <laughs> I do enjoy high and luxurious beds. But but sort of the meaning, I think, as we try to translate that one, is just not just sort of crashing out all the time and seeking escape in sleep, which is a nice thing to do, but to try and wake up a bit. And then the traditional practices of things like the Tutonga, where you take on in the Vasa season, um, the three-month sort of extra observances every year. The so-called rainy season doesn't actually fit the weather patterns here, but in the monsoon, you take on extra practices, um, that um, ascetic practices, to sharpen that sense of renunciation. They can range from only eating your meal in one sitting, not having a breakfast, so that, you know, there's just one, it's just it's one um, meal and that's it, and then it's finished, it's finished. So it's just sharpening the edge or the even more extreme ones, like not laying down at night. Um, not recommended if you haven't got a very good back. <laughs> Actually, you know, there can be a very shadow side to some of these um, practices, but... Um, but just to hear them as what can be undertaken. Um, and then the Tudong practice, which is walking. This one's actually very lovely, taking out a bit like a walkabout, you know, just walking away from it all and taking a walk, going on a pilgrimage. Tudong literally means shaking off attachments. Just get, Just change set. And you can translate that out of the sort of that a time when you could maybe go and like our teacher Jen Cha spent 20 years of his life walking through the forests of Laos and Cambodia and northeast Thailand and a lot of those forests have gone it's a completely different world now but um, the idea that you can just take off and simplify and that is perhaps one of the most useful ideas to to really think about in our model life where we never feel we can do that. And I've noticed, especially coming into the US, as I mentioned on and off for many years, but more consistently working here, probably the last, I don't know, since CDL4, maybe that was eight years ago, maybe 10 years, the pace of things and the unrelenting sense of how the society moves here you know, the sort of, I, I was uh, very surprised when I first came in, it's like you had to sort of have a doodle to, to when you could call someone, you couldn't just pick up the phone and call them, you know, you had to say, well, I can call you in a month's time. So like, you know, like, and then we had to align and I, so I never worked like that, you know, I just like pick up the phone and say, hey, how are you doing? 
And it's, it doesn't feel that easy to do that, you know, without sending out a structure and a, and a, and a, and a calendar. You know, and everything moves in this particular way and it moves with, with great unrelenting force and, and drivenness. And there's a whole psychology around that and there's a whole feeling of it's not possible to break out. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of it isn't necessarily tied with economics and tied with duties and responsibilities. But, you know, holding out and looking and exploring are there ways to just le- drop, put it down? Not necessarily drop it, but just skillfully put it down and walk. You know, maybe that's a metaphor for something, not maybe literally walking, it can be literally walking. But this way, and then as we walk, you feel all the things that pull on us, you know, and, and then you just keep walking. So that's with Tudonga shaking off attachments. So this nekama, this uh, freedom, sometimes translated as freedom from craving, relinquishment, and nikamati from the verb um, to depart from, to leave, to leave the household life. The root ni um, of the word means to finish or to complete, to internally have the sense that we can complete what happens if we die tonight. Can we complete? Um, you know, obviously nothing's ever completed. <laughs> but can we get to the place internally where we can let it be, let go, if the occasion arises that we have to, and it will, and it does. Um, and, and, you know, that feels like a very um, important practice because I notice how much, in my mind, there's this constant sense of, I have to do this and have to do that, and it never finishes. <laughs> And, it, and there's a weightiness of that. Um, so it also applies more subtly to the renunciation of um, and the emancipation from, from the craving and the lust and the hankering and the longing and the desire and the grief and the sufferings of the mind, you know, the, the hindrances of the mind. And there are particular trainings around that in terms of even at the sense doors uh, where the Buddha talks on, on seeing a form with eye, hearing a, a sound with the ear, an odor with the nose, a taste with the tongue, a touching with the body, and even the cognition through mind objects, even right down to perception and thinking, the most subtle aspect um, of, our, of the constructions of the, of the mind. Uh, a practitioner does not grasp at the appearance or at the at, at the appearances as a whole or in its parts, since leaving the mind unguarded, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief, suffering might invade. So practicing the way of restraint, the practitioner guards the mind and thereby possesses this noble restraint, thereby experiencing within themselves the bliss the unsullied, the, a bliss that is unsullied. So it can sound like renunciation can sound like, oh, this is a very negative thing. It's a very, not very positive energy. But actually in a subtle way, the practice of n- the mind not grasping uh, at, the, at the forms of the senses. It's not to say the mind can't appreciate, can't contemplate, can't consider, 
one is experienced through senses, in, including thought, of course. But it's this extra holding. It's the holding that that we're looking at, softening and releasing around. Um, and particularly from the place of reactivity around sensory experience. You know, as Ajahn Chah would say, let your mind be like a tightly woven net and catch what emerges, what appears, what feelings, in particular emotion and feeling, what emerges in the mind and contemplate, investigate before you react. I mean, that is such a profound teaching because even if we just did that much, we would save ourselves a lot of dukkha. The mind's often in a very reactive state, particularly when we're stressed and we're in a very driven we don't have a lot of shaking off of attachment and duties and have to and got to. Um, and then we get very stressed. It's very easy to get activated and then react. So this tr- these subtler trainings to what what is actually happening at the sense door and can we not have to create a big empire on that experience? you know, and structure of the self and reactivity and complexity. You know, as the as the Buddha said, um, worldly beings delight in complexity, papancha, proliferation of the mind. The Buddha's delight in the ending of that. <laughs> So that's the path practice, a moment of the ending, the moment of release from the complexity. It's not to say that we can't turn to complexity, but the mind that's freed from the reactivity and the grasping of complexity, the mind that's immersed in its own blissful, awakened, clear, discerning, mindful, um, loving, um, empathetic nature, that mind turned to complexity is a very different outcome than a mind caught through grasping. So to restrain, and then to, that takes us more into the inner and more subtle aspects of seeing, you know, as we relinquish and being able to see actually what we were shaped around and what we were so invested in as me and my issue and my agenda and my project and my life and my this and my that. We contemplate through the eye of the Dharma and we see it's it's a Nietzsche, it's changing, it's anatta, it's lacking in ultimate solidity, it's full of holes, it's dissolving all the time. It's dukkha, it's undependable. So we start to see um, through the connected with this nikama energy, uh, which is is really, really important and very profound doorway into the, what's called the nibbida, nirodha, nibbana, this, this journey into deep release deep recognition of peace, deep recognition of the unchanging, the undying, the amata dharma, the deathless dharma. The, the roadway in is through the seeing of the constant changeability and seeing the grasping mind constantly like sh- being shaped, finding a home, and then the relinquishment and seeing the patternings, but the non 
identification. The mind, there's a recognition of something else. There's another dimension. There's a what Ajahn Chah, this nibida, the dispassion, the like. Like one of the, the first time I met Ajahn Chah, one of the first times um, um, I met him um, in England and then in Thailand. I went to Thailand to track him down. Um, and uh, I was a young meditator at that point. And um, he came to, I was living at one time in this meditating community. And uh, we were all young people, didn't really know what we were doing, but we were very inspired. And uh, we were uh, kind of a collective, we were like a commune. And the main theme was meditating and doing retreats. And and Ajahn Chah turned up on one of these retreats. They were outside of Oxford in this old stately home. Um, that was actually run by a Burmese family. They they had left after um, after the um, fall of Aung San Suu Kyi as father, Suu Kyi. Um, they had left, fled from Burma, it was then Burma, and um, come to Britain, and then they bought this large home and turned it into a meditation center. And at the back of this, uh, of this huge old Victoriana, place was uh, these sort of um, old Nissan huts that they'd built in the war, the Second World War, was for evacuee, evacuating, evacuating children from the, the Blitz. So anyway, all of that was turned, all of those huts were turned into a meditation space. And we sit there for hours trying to break through into enlightenment and a very painful process and competing with e- with each other who could sit the longest and breaking our knees in the process. I'm still got a bit of a wonky knee from that whole endeavor. But one day Ajahn Chah came to one of these retreats and um, he was actually quite impressed and sort of you know, took it all in his stride and looked at all of this and then um, the first thing that he did was, uh, we didn't really know that this was even Buddhism, I don't think, at that point. We were, you know, we, there was a Buddha statue and we just put it in the corner. It's like, oh, there's this sort of like cool kind of thing, you know, and it had cobwebs on it. And and so <laughs> the first thing that Jen Char did, he saw this Buddha statue and, and we just pick it up by the neck and like, <laughs> you know, just, and he kind of very reverently picked it up by the base properly and sort of put it in a central place. This was the very first thing he did. He saw us and he just like picked this, and then he got on the ground and he bowed. And and, uh, and that really, that bow really spoke to me very profoundly. It was like I hadn't really seen anyone bow actually like that. And it, and it felt to me like a perfect statement in response to life. That's how I experienced it. It's like, oh, that's kind of what you need to do. <laughs> And that is also very much goes through the whole monastic training, this attitude of bowing. Um, but uh, but then he came to this community that I that we were I was living in at the time, and and uh, he he came and sat at the table with us. And we were all sitting around this big oval table, and um, it was very exciting because he he had an enormous presence. Um, and he was very fearless and, and had a lot of laughter, but also quite powerful. And I, I sort of sat right next to him because I was so attracted. He was like a magnet. just like a, I felt like an iron filing just being pulled to this magnet. 
And he just turned and he said, um, in Thai, it was translated, he just said, have you had enough yet? Have you had enough yet? And it was a very simple question, but for me it was like, how many more experiences do you need? How much more do you really need? I mean, I was only, I think I was about 18 at the time, but I, I actually felt like, yeah, I've had enough. Actually, I have had enough. I got it, you know, what this is all about. And it's, you know, it turns out I hadn't had enough because I've had, you know, it seems like <laughs> the insatiability of desire is a very hard one to overcome. But anyway, at that point, I really got the message. And this, this is called nibida, that sense of disenchantment. And in our culture, it's like, you know, if you feel that, it's like, well, what's wrong with you? You know, you know as they, they say in England, cheer up, love. You know, it might never happen. Cheer up, go shopping. Or they say that in America, go shopping. You know, but the, that sort of sense of something that in Thailand, they consider that actually a sort of a spiritual maturity to come to that sense of nibida, niroda, cessation, the relinquishment and the mind being ready and prepared to taste its own natural um, nibbana, its own, as um, Ajahn Mahabhua, when the Thai master says, when the mind gains change of lineage knowledge, that's how he described it, there's a shift, there's a shift. When the mind gains change of lineage knowledge, passing from the mundane to the transcendent, it will see what dies and what doesn't. It will blossom as buddho, the awareness that knows no cessation. It will recognize the unceasing fundamental nature of consciousness, conscious awareness. It will recognize that through the taste, its taste of peace, of freedom. And so the roadway, so at the most subtle level, this nekama is leading us inward. It's not just saying things are bad and we're letting, we're giving them up because there's something inherently wrong with the sensory experience. It's incredibly, incredibly amazing to have a sensory experience. You know, it's incredible to be sensitive. But it's the grasping of the mind. And to, and as that deepens and even the taste, even the moment recognition of the freedom, the unbounded, mind, the unfettered uh, mind, uh, even that just sort of entering the stream or tasting the stream of the Dharma, there's a, a knowing at a very deep level, this is the path. And it transcends, you know for yourself what the path is. It doesn't necessarily have to depend on being told or you might forget the path, you can still be susceptible to greed, hatred and delusion. You're not finished but it's an important reorientation at a very deep level that you recognize that there is a fruit of the path, that it can be tasted, that it takes you beyond the reliance, really these, these fetters, the fetters of self-view, of um, doubt, of belief in rites and rituals, sila basabaramasa. This is really talking about the cognitive, the reliance, over-reliance on the cognitive constantly running through everything through the separative consciousness me you thinking about as the frame of which from which we trust our orientation and in a way this this recognition at this entering the stream is realizing there's a whole another way of orientating within life 
from the deep intuitive intelligence of the living Dharma that becomes accessible uh, to us. And then the, the relinquishment then, the natural relinquishment, the fruition of that, of hypocrisy and fraud. These are the, some of the fruits, envy and domineering, denigration. You know, then, and then the arising, this, this really this dana energy, this positive outflow at, at its depth is the arising of the recognition of that uh, actually, n- you know, this none of this belongs to us. <laughs> dana is it? You know, we have this feeling. I'm giving you dana um, as an act of generosity, and certainly that's important to practice at that level. Um, and it is a practice because because the, the mind constricts around that sense of ownership. But really, the the depth of the dana is the recognition that it's all given. It's you know it's uh, you know it's not necessarily appears in the human realm as that because there's this tremendous sense of of um, you know the desire to control and own it all. You know, the other night I went over to Oakland to watch the. Um, um, just to bring a, a political lens for a second, <laughs> I'll take it away again in a second and come back to it later in the retreat. But to watch the the document, the the um, launch of the documentary, the the best democracy money can buy by Greg Palast, um, and uh, you know um, the f- the the money behind the stolen election. The, and the 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 frame where one of the Koch brothers, David Koch, who was a, one of the oligarchic billionaires, um, massive massive amounts of control going on um, on all sectors of American society and beyond, um, saying, um, "I want my sh- my piece, and I I want my share, and I want it all." And so, like the the epitome of the ego consciousness, I want it all. I want it all, and look what has to happen to want it all. This unbelievable acts of oppression and violence and war to want it all, you know. And so, in a way, this and and yet never feeling that it's enough. I mean, that's the irony of it. How much do you need when you've got ninety billion dollars or whatever it is, you know? And you look at these guys at the top that have it all, and they're miserable as sin. They're not joyous, they're not happy, they're not beautiful, they're not um, gracious. They're, they're orcs, you know. Um, they're, <laughs> they are, they're like, um, you know, they're the, 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 the plundering orcs. You know, um, bloodlust, you know, it's never enough. Um, and and the, you know the you know con- con- on the contrary, um, not I'm not romanticizing uh, poverty here because poverty is not a romantic thing. It's a very very hard thing. But you know I have met people that are so called poor that are radiant, that understand that that have an enormous wealth of spirit and heart and connection and um, relationship. So you know, just just the, the the depth of understanding that it's all been given to us. This is a, we are recipients of enormous dana. Every breath we take, 
every sun ray that powers the earth, every drink of water that we have, every meal that we consume, enormous amounts of dana, and that we are just really entering that flow of dana when we, when we engage it very consciously and then quicken that as a path activity through the activity of conscious sharing and giving. And it is a practice because consciously um, it has to be done because the mind grasps, it owns, it holds. And there is a place, you know, when we look at through a psychological systemic lens, it cannot be the right teaching for someone to say, let it all go and give it all up. For some it might be, you need to hold on and build a sense of of ground, (laughs) A, a wholesome sense of well-being, you know, so again, we can come to that later down the road in the retreat. But just as a, as a pure energy in and of itself, um, Master Xunhua, the great Chinese master, um, from whom um, I uh, also had a great uh, honor of meeting and um, being um, very drawn since the 1980s to his transmission, particularly around the Kuan Yin Dharmas. He talks about, um, and this is a very traditional Mahayana teaching, you find the roots of it as everything in the, in the Theravada, they're not two separate things ultimately. Um, it talks about the, the giving in three frames as, as a practice to practice the giving of wealth um, and material support um, to guests, to travelers, to the sick, sick to the needy, um, to friends, to, to causes, but to do that um, wisely. You know, I, f- I found this in um, working in South Africa for so many years in such a decimated society as a result of 300 odd years of colonialism and then apartheid on top of that, legislated apartheid, it left um, the African community completely um, decimated, particularly in the deep rural areas. And going in, first of all, as you know, obviously as a white person, I'm privileged just because for the fact that I'm going in, um, even though I went in post-apartheid, it still resonated a lot into, you know, apartheid still is a very deep, I mean, it was very successful in that it really did what it set out to do. And so there's a huge amount of recovery and restorative justice that's still in play. It's a very deep and complex story unfolding and um, painful in many ways. And, you know, and so just feeling a lot of white guilt and a lot of uh, but also wanting to respond and a tremendous amount of overwhelm and not really f- knowing how to respond it really had to had to really consider what is the wise response and i i have to say i never really found that and still f- trying to find that and you just try your best but if you are in a position of more wealth for whatever reason and and in a, in many ways we're always in the position of more wealth than someone else <laughs> in in this world. Um, how to give wisely is not necessarily a question of just throwing money around. It's how to consider wisely the best effect, the way of giving, 
And then when one gives, to give without demand of reward, without an agenda, to give mindfully and to let go. Um, So this is a whole practice. So the giving of wealth, um, the giving of fearlessness, Master Wa talked a lot about, this is another gift, the giving of standing by those that are more vulnerable, those that are fearful, those that are um, unable to stand up, to stand with those, to um, be a protector, to be an ally, to be a support, to offer uh, an ear, to to offer time, um, to offer courage. So Ajahn Chah, one of his greatest gifts was courage. You know, however difficult it got and it would get very difficult in that way of practice however overwhelming however much you wanted to give up he would always give the message you can do this there's nothing outside what I've done that you can't do you can do this and and then he'd land up making you you laugh about yourself Uh, Kirisaro my partner tells a story how he got very, very, very sick in Thailand. He nearly died and, and you know, he had a tremendous amount of ill health. His whole system basically collapsed when he was over there. Um, and he got in a very, very deep depression because he'd been a very um, athletic person before he went into that training and his, com- his body completely changed and uh, his health fell apart. And then he, and because of that, he went to a very deep depression and after months, he just felt like I'm never going to laugh again. This Dharma thing has just taken me to a kind of, a, you know, into a, a hole. Um, so one day he, he made an appointment and got um, his friend, um, Ajahn Pabakaro, who'd um, come from Vietnam, actually joined the order, had been a helicopter pilot and landed up in Thailand on R&R and landed up in Ajahn Charles Monastery and stayed for about 20 years or so. Anyway, he spoke fluent Thai um, and he helped translate. So Kirisara and Ajahn Pabakra went off to Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Chah would receive people under his kuti um, in the evenings. He would sit in his wicker chair and people would come from the village, monks, nuns, they would just come and hang out, hang out with him and he'd just sit there and he would talk and laugh and, and uh, chew betel nut and spit out this red juice and he had no teeth. And, and he would like... Kitty Sara came and and sat there at his feet and he said, oh, Lung Po, Cha, Lung Po, I'm never going to laugh again. I'm never, never going to laugh again. He said, it's it's too difficult. And um, I don't know what to do. I'm in a terrible, terrible state. And Ajahn Chah went, hmm. He He said, well, you remind me of of a chipmunk. He said, this chipmunk, this baby chipmunk, looked at his mother and the mother would jump in the trees. She'd jump from branch to branch. She'd do a loop-de-loo and branch and land and, and the chipmunk would look like, oh, I'm going to do that and run up the tree and leap and then dock, fall, dock in Thai, fall, fall down and, and hurt itself. And be crying, 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 go to the mother. I, I can't do it. And the mother says, you need to go to school. So Chipmunk goes to school and then runs up the tree, jump, dog, you know, cry, cry. You need to go to, you know, second grade, third grade. Anyway, he had this Chipmunk going to college and then 
By the time the chipmunk was getting a PhD, Kitty Star was rolling around the floor, laughing his head off. You know, he was just, you know, he had him laughing, laughing. He said, and one day, he said, that chipmunk leapt and flew through the air and it could do everything its mother could do. And so Kitty Star felt this glow of warmth and felt so happy and so I'm going to do this and do this and do this. Then Ajahn Charles said, you also remind me of a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) He thought, "Uh uh-oh, it sounds like trouble. And he said, this donkey was a very clever donkey. Very, very clever, very intelligent donkey. And at night it would hear the cicadas, the crickets singing like we're hearing now. And it loved the sound of the cicadas. And it listened and listened and said, I want to make that sound. How can I do that sound? So it go around and say, what are the donkeys doing? And it noticed that the donkeys in the early, early morning would go and lick all the dew drops from the plants. So the cicadas, so the cicadas would lick all the dew drops from the plants. So the donkey wakes up early, early in the morning and he starts licking one, two, three, ten thousand dewdrops, licking, licking. And then one day gets ready, opens its mouth, and you know what happens. <laughs> Eeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeee
So I'll leave that there for now um, as just a way to give a little bit of a template for this These really are very profound practices that we can do every day in every all manner of ways of the re, 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 what can be released and let go and what can be brought forth and offered. It's two movements that complement each other. I'm just going to consult with Ruth for a second. So, um, what we can do um, as we have the second part of the evening is to go into groups of three, four max, and just to to talk to each other, explore how these um, principles of uh, generosity and renunciation, uh, to give them their usual translations, how they play out in your life, how you see them operating, where they're, they're happening, how you see the place of practice to cultivate them um, and maybe where where your sort of edges around them um, and and also maybe I don't know if it's too complex a thing to bring in tonight but um, it might also include and um, come into the discussion um, ways of understanding these principles that you know, there's this whole spiritual bypass um, terminology and shape that we can move into where you feel like I should be <laughs> being able to do these things when, you know, I should give everything away. Um, and it can be used in ways that undermine a person's ability to really find their own ground and to cultivate perhaps what's needed is to actually hold on um, and not to relinquish everything to, to, for your own sake of your own well-being. Um, and uh, you know, I certainly had this sort of feeling, um, I think for my monastic training, that you had to just constantly serve and let go of everything and give it all up and, you know, um, and it wasn't very psychologically um, sophisticated at a certain level. And then because of that, because it wasn't a very integrated and, and there's a lot to learn, and I'm very glad that I had that kind of a training, but there was also a lot of um, pushback into the self-structure, which led to uh, a, a lack of inner cohesion and well-being and an authentic ability to stand in my own power. Um, and uh, and that is, you know, so sometimes it's not always the right movement to give, uh, to let go. Um, so that piece might just come in as well. So I don't want to, to just, you know, add those lenses. Um, 
and uh, we can talk about that also uh, later as we go on into into certainly I'd like to bring it back into um, when we talk about the worldly dharmas. So to find a, a few people that you would like to explore this with, and let's just about 20 minutes, and then uh, we can come back and just gather um, from harvest back what you've uh, explored to share with the group, or if there's anything further you'd like to mention or ask about. So you can include a break in that. And so it's now, it's quarter past eight. So let's come back at about 20 to nine, and we can have the last 20 minutes just for wrapping up as a group together. You can stay in here, you could go in one of the small rooms, um, the council room.
So beginning to wrap up our conversations. So it'd just be nice to um, hear if there were any, uh, what kind of themes um, came from your discussions to contribute to the collective um, around this contemplation of these parameters. Anyone feel like to share either personally or what was perhaps maybe uh, from the group? different themes that were spoken about, maybe similar themes that you shared. Thank you. I appreciated what you said at the end and we talked a little bit about that in our group about the should. I oftentimes struggle in the should in terms of um, giving, whether it's um, Donna, but I think just on a, a more macro scale. So that is something that I want to kind of just continue to sit with and um, and just be aware of. Yeah. Thank you. Good evening, Tanisara. Thank you for a great talk tonight. Good evening, Thomas. My name's Thomas. And, you know, I was really interested in, um, and you didn't necessarily, I don't think, put a close to the story around Kitasaro and his visiting Ajahn Chah that night and the story about the chipmunk and the donkey. But it seemed to me, because I'm still hearing that story, and it seemed to me that there was something about the story about the donkey and Kitasaro not relying on his own, standing in his own power, perhaps, or finding his own voice that contributed more to his suffering than the physical thing that brought him there. And I, 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 I don't think that you've opened that up for further discussion out of respect. <laughs> but I was, I was, I'm still hearing that story, that the inability to identify with his own voice at that level of his training contributed more to his suffering, possibly. 
And is, is that a possibility? That's what I wanted to ask you. Um, I think there's a couple of pieces in this. I think, first of all, Ajahn Chah was mostly going for the mind. And they didn't give in that training very much... Um, uh, what's the word? Um, accommodation for the body. <laughs> so they were, they were, you know, that was perhaps I see that more as a. a that's just where they 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 were came came from in the forest school. Very harsh on the body. So he would be looking really at the mind state. And and if I think of Kilisara's journey, and of course I can't completely speak on his behalf to addressing this, and hopefully he'll be able to do that at some point when you meet him, but. Um, you know, he'd come from a very striving conditioning um, of um, grew up in Tennessee and and had um, the, the kind of conditioning that he was in was a, a lot of striving academically and in sports. And I mean, he speaks about this quite free. This is no secret. He speaks about it in his Dharma talks. How he took that into the Dharma practice. Um, and and really started to put himself in more and more probably extreme situations that in part, not completely, because they, they were also living in a very, you know, he got, um, he got um, t- a typhoid, a very um, deadly strain, and so that was just came through the water, but in part there was a lot of, the body was really run down um, because of the conditions that they were living in. Um, and so my sense of the story is also, you know, you don't have to strive so much to try and be someone. You know, just accept who you are, just relax and accept and, and be, you know, what you are. That was the, f- the feeling that I always understood from that story. Um, and that would be very, um, you know, like I remember when uh, another another monk that, that was also um, American had been in Vietnam, Ajahn Nanando, who spent uh, 20 years in the UK, also has, um, became one of the abbots there. And um, he was also very warrior-like. I mean, it was a very warrior tradition. So the lover energy wasn't very balanced. It was very, very striving. And and there, I think as young men, there was this thing like the more practices we can take on, the more of these Tudonga practices, tough practices. And so at one point, Ananda was doing all of these practices and was quite proud about it. And then one day, Ajahn Chah just turned around to him, and, you know, fasting and sitting up all night and, you know, all of the things that, that there's 13 of them, I can't remember them all now. And Ajahn Chah just turned around to him and said, look, just can't you be normal? it's enough already you know it's enough you're doing enough already you know just be normal so he would he would always look at the imbalance and then go for that you know yeah thank you yeah appreciate that the the sorry over here (laughs) hi hi um the three of us uh talking about renunciation and generosity. Uh, these are very strong cultural values in Latino uh, families and communities and our ancestors from Mexico and Guatemala and our families. So I, I was um, thinking more and more how sometimes, especially renunciation, could be translated into sacrifice 
and that it's expected, you know, that it, it's not even, doesn't even look like such a big renunciation what you're doing because you're supposed to do that. And then, um, yeah, that... Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I get it. Thank you for... Arti- I was trying to articulate something like that and you really nailed it. Yeah, yeah, and that has a shadow side to it of not having your needs met and not being individuated in, 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 you know, in, the, in a fuller way. And it's very much goes with... I mean, I noticed in my Irish family, um, particularly for the women, it's very much expected that that's, you know, that comes from the religious conditioning um, a lot and also just the patriarchy of the culture in a certain way. So that is, uh, you know, often very... I mean, it has a certain beauty to it, but it often comes at a great expense. And also, the, as the shadow operates, it comes out in, uh, you know, in, in, in ways when the person isn't very fully actualized in their individuation and fully empowered and, and able to have their needs met, needs met in a healthy psychological way that we would understand through the psychology, then often the, their shadow then is interacting in ways that aren't altogether healthy and can land up being manipulative and resentful and cold and you know so there's there's a sort of there's always a price to pay somewhere along the line when that doesn't isn't acknowledged and that's that's what I was trying to look through that lens as well it's really important to how these teachings can be misapplied in the in it can be a blanket teaching and it's not sophisticated there's not enough sophistication to understand how important it is to apply that accurately within the cultural psychological um, systemic levels of where someone as an individual is coming from and what their history is and what that's all about. Um, so it's not that the principle is wrong, but the application of it and how it can be misused and, and almost packaged in a Dharma language to um, undermine what could be a healthy individuated process in it psychologically that becomes a more complex territory and it's certainly one that we need to be aware of as Dharma practitioners and teachers. So thank you for bringing that in so um, clearly. That's helpful. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, my name is Jack. Um, Thank you very much for your talk. It really resonated with me. Um, a couple of things uh, in our group that came up. One is the importance of um, reflecting uh, deeply before the letting go occurs. Um, it it seems like there there could be a way where letting go could just be a reactive, impulsive thing. And in each of the stories we told, uh, there was much more of a process of reflection, which was very helpful when the decision to let go was made, helpful in the sense of dealing with the difficulties that arose subsequently. And... um, the other thing that was interesting in our discussion is everyone mentioned the sense of spaciousness that occurred as a result of the letting go. Yeah. 
I think that's a, a very good point. So, you know, to, um, I mean, sometimes you have to let go of letting go. You know, it can be like, you know, the, the, the thing to do. It's, <laughs> but you're not really understanding what you're letting go of, even if it's appropriate to let go, you know, at that moment. It might be appropriate to hold on. Um, so it can become just a sort of default teaching that's not, again, in, informed by wisdom. So that deep contemplation has to be informed. Um, because it can be a renunciation to hold something, of course. If you're holding a family or a child or a project or, you know, that there's a lot of renunciation demanded in having to carry something through time and space that, that you know, you're putting a lot of energy in to bring it to fruition. Um, so so it can be overly simplistically applied. And, and yet, uh, you know, you can let go within the holding because it doesn't have to be either or. So the way you hold can have that, that deeper um, non-grasping of the mind and actually then the holding can be more joyful and less resentful <laughs> or whatever. More. So there's a subtle place and that, you know, that is true that that moment of the relinquishment however it comes about in whatever context there is a sort of a space and in that space something else can come in and maybe something you know particularly if that space is infused then with wise wisdom and contemplation and mindful investigation then that space could can come in can be completely unknown wisdom you know an intelligence that you haven't under it's out of your strategy and some other piece can, oh, let's move this way. You know, and that's really nice when that happens. You see the living Dharma, as Ajahn Chah call it, operating then. It's not a dead thing, you know, it's speaking to us. Yeah. Hi, Tanisra. Thank you very much uh, for your Hi. talk. My name is Landa. Mm. And uh, we had a very insightful uh, discussion in our group, but I hope it is permitted if I ask you a question as well. Sure. <laughs> um, you spoke about uh, the three frames of dana, mm. um, and um, that that leads to two questions for me. One was around uh, offering courage. Mm and the fearlessness, and you spoke about that in the context of offering that to people in deprived circumstances. Mm. My question uh, would be, I assume that that is also the case for people who are going through some kind of difficulty, sure, like yeah, illness yeah. or grief. Or, sure, yeah. sure, yeah. And my other question was, where does um, the generosity about around my energy, my time, my love, fit into these three frames. You mean the offering of your love and your... Yeah. Um, well, I think they f it fits into all, all of them, really. You know, dana implies... Um, this, you know, implies a lot of different factors that are interfacing in that moment. Um, a sense of empathy, empathetic resonance, a sense of desire to help, a sense of um, one, uh, benevolence and support, a sense of maybe even, you know, it can happen at, a, at cognitive levels, like actually, I mean, sometimes I can notice that I, I do dana from that level. I don't really feel it, but I think I should really be doing this and support this, and I can and I need to. 
It doesn't have that quite the same feeling when it comes from that really, that love feeling or that sense of heart or like I really want to extend here. And it doesn't necessarily always mean a monetary transaction. It's also, you know, being there for someone, whoever, um, in whatever situation. And, and, And it can happen in the most normal transactions of life, you know, that those that without that spirit of, of love and connection and receptivity, that things can become overly functional. So to really explore, what does that really mean? You know, Because even if, like, you know, as Master Wa went on to say, even at a subtle level, if there's the sense of self-giving and the sense of self-receiving, that's still, there's still this sort of uh, um, subtle hindrance in it. There's still you're still putting someone in an obliged position almost. If you are the one coming from the power position of I can give this to you. Um, so there are ways of giving where that can be emptied out and, you know, and, and how to explore that. And and to also realize that we are being given too. You know, we're not just, you know, we are and allowing ourselves. And that was one of the difficult things from the Western culture is like, I'm independent, I don't need anything. Don't don't give me anything, and um, and actually one thing I I really you know recognize was in the Thai understanding it was very very different. It's like you're giving me an opportunity to give, and the, therefore you should receive this, and that was a, a rather strange way. Like on a birthday in Thailand, you give gifts. You know, it's your opportunity to give. You don't expect people to come and give you gifts. So it's a, a different way of of framing it. And there's also a shadow in that because in the monastic life. You can become like a spiritual bank account for the barami, the development of the barami and the punya, the blessing for, you know, for you know, if you give to monastics and you give to male monastics, um, then you're going to receive more barami. Um, and there's not, you know, there there's a deep principle, not so much the gender thing, but there is a deep principle of bar- of there is a sort of energy around dana, especially when it's very pure, that generates a response. But it can become very corrupted. It has become very corrupted. And, um, and then, you know, but what about everyone else? You know, what about someone that isn't going to give you something back because of who they are, whatever, and what, you know, so... You know, so all of these have to come into contemplation. You know, it's a very, very profound area to explore. So, uh, just this last, uh, last uh, question or was comment. Thank you, Tanisara, um, for your talk. Uh, my name's Beth, and um, I was really touched by what you shared in watching Ajahn Chah bow when you first saw him bow and you said something like, you know, this is how we should all go through life. And I wonder if, I mean, to me, bowing is about devotion or humility or reverence. And I wonder if there's, if you have anything to say about that act or that expression um, metaphorically and literally that that deals that ties in with renunciation and dana yeah very good question I, for me it was more the feeling of this is the perfect expression in response to life that's what i felt it was like the perfect physical manifestation of how how like that movement into life rather than like the grabbing or the 
distracted. It was like this very purposeful. Um, so that was a that was a transmission in that physical act. That's how I saw it. And I realized actually, I said I, I was 21 when I first met him. I think 20 or 21, not 18. I got the number wrong, so I just want to get that right. But um, but you know, and in the monastic life, it's all around bowing. You bow when you come into a room. You bow when you leave. You bow to each other, you bow to your seniors, you, you bow, you know, you're bowing all the time. And, and at a certain point it becomes a bit rote and you lose that spirit. But it's still a very profound gesture. And the gesture is, you know, it's physical, but it's really about an inner mudra or inner attitude of the heart of um, again and again taking particularly the cognitive brilliance of the... the um, um, mano vinyana, the, the thinking mind, um, taking that down um, and in a way opening up into listening into the body and heart and into presence. So this, this sort of re-establishing what is the core, what is the ground that you're moving from. And so for me that's what the bow is. Um, and um, I think it's a, you know, just that sense of that movement is a, it's a very gracious thing that we can do um, when it comes from the right place and it's, um, you know, it both shapes the mind and is an expression of that same devoted mind. Mm. And of course, expression of the devotion to the Dharma. Um, and it's come, you know, you see it also in Christian monasticism, actually. Do you see that those, you know, when the monks take the robes, they do that full length prostrations. So it goes cross cultures, I think, in, in religious metaphor. The idea, prof- the profound idea, is that you're relinquishing, you're placing the sense of self, um, you're, you're dethroning the sense of self, the ego consciousness. You're dethroning that, and you're you're putting something else, the buddhic knowledge, the knowing, the uh, intuitive awareness, the mindful discernment. You're putting that as the sort of the crown rather than, than you know, the you um, working it all out. So it also reconfigures around that. And if you don't know, I mean, like just to finish, I know we need to finish tonight, but another Anando story. Anando, who was the Vietnam vet, um, who also found himself, um, he was very disaffected. A young man joined the GIs, got... Uh, profoundly wounded, I was shot in the back of the head um, and uh, was a radio man in a helicopter and um, kind of came out of that, went on the hippie trail, landed up in Thailand, became Ajahn Chah's disciple in the early 1970s, um, eventually came to England, was an abbot for about 20 years. He left after 20 years, he got married and then about two years after he left, um, this wound that he had activated and uh, he died of a brain tumor when he was about, uh, I think he didn't make it to 50 quite. So he was, um, but he was a very impressive monk. He was a warrior. You know, he was a tough kid on the block where he grew up and then he was a tough GI and then he was a tough monk. But towards the end of his, he started to do a lot around meta. He had a lot of, we didn't understand trauma in those days. We didn't understand that he had enormous amount of trauma from Vietnam. Um, but, you know, and he didn't either, so he just, but he, he had this, uh, when he was, (laughs) 
when he was our abbot um, in England. Um, and he was always very, very gracious to the nuns. He really helped the nuns. He wasn't, he liked women in, in that he wasn't afraid of women. So he really opened the door for us in many ways. So we were all very fond of him. And, um, you know, but he had this sort of old kind of kid on the block thing. And there was one other monk, another American monk, that he, they couldn't stand each other. They really had a hard time with each other. And Nando was really on his case, this guy, um, this other monk. And one day he said to him, okay, I'll meet you outside on the lawn. You know, like, um, <laughs> you know, monasteries, people have these very unrealistic ideas about what monasteries are. I mean, they're, they're like insane asylums at some level. So he's out there and he's like facing off with this other with this other monk and they're really ratcheting up. And this is after years as a monk, you know, as, a, as an abbot, he's an abbot as well. And he's like, <laughs> and, and he's like, and he's, and he's like, he's, he describes it after his fists are like, you know, like the old Marine. He's like, he's, he's just gonna bunch, punch this guy on the nose, you know, and he's like, and he goes like this. And then he just got down and he bowed to him instead. So in that moment, he, he kind of, the monk came back <laughs> and he just bowed to the guy and he just like, just blew them both away <clears throat> they just started crying and I mean it wasn't the end of the story but <clears throat> but for a moment it averted a disaster and a breaking of some of the one one of the 200 and odd rules that you know that he would have certainly have had to done some sort of um, restorative justice around that one but um, yeah but yeah so that that's the power of it and you might not be in a situation where you can get on your knees and bow in the street, but you might be able to go into that mudra um, and um, perhaps soften the violence, you know, that's in the air. It's, it's, yeah. It also happened, sorry, one more, just one more, Ajahn Sujito, who you also know, if you read his book, Ruda Awakenings, when he was um, walking in India, and um, on, uh, they did a tudong in India, him and uh, his attendant. And they were told, don't go into this forest. It was near um, the, um, it's in Bihar, near the Vulture Peak. And it's very lawless and quite rough. And of course, you know, he went into the forest. As, you know, that's what you do when you're a sort of tough monk. <laughs> you go in. <laughs> so he's, they're walking through this forest and they got surrounded by these, uh, this, this group of like, like, like daikots, like bandits you know, with, with machetes. And um, they were going to kill them. They, they weren't messing around. They stripped them kind of pretty much naked, took all their stuff, their robes, their bowl. They, on this pilgrimage, all their kind of cameras and books and credit card, the attendant, they took it all. And the attendant just ran. He just ran. And, um, and, uh, and Ajahn Sujito, I mean, he's an incredible practitioner. He just put his hands together and he bowed and he said, there's my neck and he started chanting. He just started chanting. He just focused his mind. And he just he thought that this is it, this is the end. So he just started chanting. But what they did is actually is they, they stripped him down and then they ran after the attendant and they got him and they were, they were going to kill him. They wanted him to get in this hole and he managed to escape and he threw himself because he was in such had such adrenaline, he threw himself off this precipice almost through these thorn bushes and he, he got away. Um, and then he remembered, oh, the Ajahn. I left the Ajahn, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the naked Ajahn, yeah. 
So, um, so anyway, so he eventually found his way. The guys get these guys. They didn't want to go after him, and through all these thorn bushes. So they they were happy with their, you know, stash, and they left them. But it's like those moments, you know, as Ajahn Chah would say, you know, we practice, you know, this mundane practice, we practice for the moment when the real stuff hits. What do you do in that moment? Where's you going to place your mind? If you, you know, you, this might be your last moment, where's your mind? So the, the, all these practices, these rote things, the chanting, the bowing, the, you know, coming back to your breath yet again, feeling your butt on the cushion, all these sort of refrains. I mean, if you look at the, training, it's all refrain, it's all repetition, 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 repetition. Um, and it's because of that, you know, that moment when you could just react and lose the whole thing, you just like, the mindfulness comes to the fore and you let that guide. You know. Sadhu, so let's, uh, let's just finish tonight and we can share the blessings of our evening. I just want to add one thing because we can take the chanting into the night. Just to remind you that um, our morning session tomorrow, tomorrow starts at 9. So if you see an old schedule lying around that still says 8.45, <clears throat> just remember that when we meet after breakfast as a group, that starts at 9. Deeply appreciating our good fortune to be together in this space and to contemplate the Dharma and to have a roof over our heads for the night, food for our sustenance, good companionship to help us along the way and feeling through the stories the connection with you uh, wonderful practitioners and tonight uh, Ajahn Chah and many disciples that he inspired. It's a tremendous gift of the Dharma and many, many through the ages that we're riding on the wave of their barami, of their blessings. May we continue to extend those blessings out and beyond ourselves as we contribute to that field of blessings to touch, particularly at this time of great challenge across the planet and in this country. Touch the beings, all beings' hearts in the prayer and the invocation for the lessening of Hate, the lessening of greed, the lessening of delusion, and the increase of peace and wisdom and compassion. Chanting Kuan Yin's heart mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, touching through each sound out into all the different realms, awakening at the core of each being in each circumstance. May it be so. Oh.
Good night, everyone. Rest well and see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.